Welcome to where we explore the magic of music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and relive your favorite movies through music. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Let's have a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we play today. recognize that piece of music well the chances are that you probably don't and it's for good reason it was a score that was written for a film called goodbye lover and it was rejected and it was written by one of my heroes john barry it's a beautiful piece of music but it was just rejected george and i thought it would be interesting to talk about not only uh, scores that have been rejected, but that for whatever reason, they've just never been heard all that much. Dive right into it. Welcome back, George. Appreciate you being with us again. It's great to be here. Let's see. Uh, what was I going to... Oh, one thing I wanted to ask before we get into that, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, but I, I'd like to, to hear a little bit more on this. Uh, how, is, how, is compo- how has scoring films changed from when you first got uh, got started in the business? Well, um, when I started, there was no such thing as uh, doing mock-ups. You know, you, you, you could play it on the piano and, and go, and the French horns are going to go, da-da, da-da, and the director goes, oh, okay. And you really <laughs> never knew, they really never knew what it was going to sound like until they got into uh, the scoring stage. And then, you know, the pressure was on because the, the words I hated to hear after I conducted a cue from uh, the engineer in the booth was, uh, George, could you come in? The director would like to speak with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, the words you don't want to hear. Yeah. You knew you were in for a long day. But uh, that has changed. Um, there was no such thing as temp, uh, temp scores. There was no such thing as test marketing where they hire an audience and you know, try to get scores from the audience as to how they like the movie or don't like it, how they like the musical approach or don't like it. Uh, so some of the marketing aspects of it and physical and technical aspects of it have changed. But the basic job is the same job uh, as it was when I started out. Yeah, it's interesting that that now instead of having to either record, a uh, bring in some musicians and do a demo to give them a sense of how it's going to sound or instead of waiting to that, you know, day when the recording sessions start now, you can, you can almost recreate, I suspect with like a, a keyboard, you can recreate a lot of the sounds that you need to give a feel or a flavor for what it's going to sound like. 
It really, uh, that's really true. And in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, it's become a, an invaluable tool uh, because you're having to move so fast and um, it's, it's, it's better to get a sense right away of whether or not where you're going with it is, uh, is the direction the director uh, wants or needs. Uh, for the film. So that's really the best way to do it. And the better you make those mock-ups sound, the easier your job's going to be for the rest of the film. So I spend a lot of time, yeah. uh, my assistant and I spend a lot of time making sure they sound great when the director comes over to listen to them. Do you, um, what, what, I, maybe there isn't a typical, but how much time are you usually given between, you know, starting to put, uh, put notes together and when this when the recording session is finally finished it, is there an average amount of time that you're given for that well there was uh that's one of the things that's changed a lot too since i started uh maybe when i started i could i had up to eight weeks you know and mm -hmm. so sometimes if you're hired early on a film uh then you have much longer than that but nowadays you know six weeks you're really lucky to have six weeks and sometimes maybe just four weeks uh, between the time you start composing and the time you start recording. Wow. And then I mean, the, the other problem is they keep changing the movie based upon uh, test results from uh, preview screenings. And, uh, you know, and so um, you're always having to adapt what you've written to the newest cut. I told the director of uh, Austin Powers, Jay Roach, I said, you know, it's like trying to fit clothes on a running man. You know, it's like... <laughs> It. Okay, I got it. Okay, wait. Let, let me recut it. Okay, I got it. Until finally, you know, you get down to the scoring stage. And uh, and even then, sometimes they'll bring in new cuts of scenes and you have to adapt it right there on the on the podium. Wow. All right, so what's, what's your record? What's the shortest amount of time that you were given between, you know, composing and finally ultimately getting recorded? I did a replaced score, um, and I forgot what it was. It was two weeks. But I think the... <sighs> The most music I've ever had to write in the shortest amount of time was a 90-minute uh, orchestral score for Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and I had four weeks to do it. And that was, that was really crunching. I bet. 90 minutes. Yeah. That's actually, that's, well, I don't know. These days, I think there's, there, there seems to be more music than there used to be, but in, in films, I mean. But 90 minutes, that's a lot, folks. Yeah. That's a lot to try to put together and get it recorded. And and I'm now I'm on a roll with questions. Bear with me with one more. Okay. Is it my understanding that, you know, there's not a lot of time spent on rehearsal when you get to the scoring stage. It, it, it The musicians are so professional that basically you give them the sheet music and we roll. Is, is, is that a, an honest interpretation of that? It is an honest interpretation. The, the musicians who do film scoring are so great at sight reading that after... I don't know, two or three run-throughs, you're ready to start recording. And um, I remember on one film, uh, I was working with a, a music supervisor who hadn't done an orchestral score before, and uh, she came up to me and she said, wow, when did you guys rehearse? I didn't see it on the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and we hadn't, you know, this just how good they are. Yeah, and, and people need to keep in mind, it's one thing for a, a band of four or six people to play something together, but you're talking about groups of 50, 60, 90 people that all have to be in sync and, and, and perform. And it's, it just, when I heard that, it blew me away that there, there wasn't all that much time on rehearsal, just sight reading and, and they go. So that's it. All right. Well, 
we we kind of titled this particular section of it unheard music what what did you exactly mean by that or what is it that 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 you were getting at when you say it's it's unheard i think uh, all composers have scores uh, they feel like were really great scores that they did for movies that just didn't go anywhere and as a result very little of that music ever got heard um by the public uh, or by anybody other than our family and our close close (laughs) friends of the people who worked on the the film. And so it was that. And then also uh, every composer who has worked for a while has had a score rejected. And um, I think that it's interesting to to realize that that's also a reality. And a lot of that music never gets heard. Okay. Well, let's start off with... uh... This was a, a film called The Big Bounce, uh, made in 2004, and uh, I, I really liked this when I listened to it, and it was interesting how I know, certain instruments and certain sounds connote either a place or a time or whatever, and this very obviously had a, some Hawaiian aspects to it. Exactly. Uh, talk, talk to us about this particular cue we're going to play. Okay, this is a, a, a little medley. I've created some medleys for you of, of three to four different cues to give you a sense of the score. Um, okay. I wanted, I wanted it to have a Hawaiian influence. So along with the orchestra, I used a Hawaiian lap steel guitar and ukulele and some Hawaiian percussion. And sometimes you'll hear some people going, hey! you know, so like they do when, <laughs> they, when they do the luau's. And so you, utilizing, it's like seasoning. That's what I love about film scoring. You can just use a little seasoning and suddenly instead of just a, a piece of steak, it's, uh, it's fajitas, you know what okay, I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and it's all in the, the seasoning and the preparation. And so I, I like to do that with my scores. This particular uh, movie, it didn't do too well. Owen Wilson was in it and had some really good stars. Um, uh, Forrest, not Forrest Whitaker. Uh, gosh, I can't think of his name now. Morgan Friedman. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. Really big names. Charlie Sheen was in it. And uh, it's, a, it's a caper film that takes place in Hawaii, and everybody's trying to uh, outdo everybody else, you know, in, in terms of this caper. And so uh, I wanted the music to have a bounce. You'll hear it starts with a bonkin, gonkin, like the orchestra is bouncing. And so I wanted to include that as one of the thematic elements in it as, as well. Okay. Well, here's a, a medley of uh, various cues from the, uh, from the score that was written for a movie called The Big Bounce. And again, done by our, uh, our guest, George Clinton. Let's have a listen.
Another film that uh, you said had not gotten heard was a. It was called uh, Delta Venus. This was made in 1995. It was a. My little notes here tell me it was basically a love affair that takes place in the in the 40s in Paris. What um, what led you to want to include that one? Uh, this was again uh, directed by Zaman King, who did Red Shoe Diaries, and was based upon the the novel by Aeneas Nin, who is a French. Uh, writer of the early 1900s, I guess, 20s. And um, it's, uh, she was an, an erotic novelist. And so it has an erotic flavor to it. But it also has this real sort of old school romantic um, period kind of thing going on. And so uh, the approach I took was that. You know, I made it um, um, exotic or erotic in places, but basically I wanted it to be like a traditional. Uh, romance uh, that was taking place, and it's sort of a star-crossed lovers. In fact, you'll hear at the the end on the finale that I included, uh, he's standing on a bridge over the river Seine, watching her disappear into the fog, standing on the back of a boat to never see each other again. And so it's that kind of um, heightened sense of romance and uh, storytelling. Okay, it sounds great, and and yet the movie didn't. Again, didn't perform too well, I guess, huh? Not, no. Jeez. Okay. Well, you, and you never know, do you? I guess sometimes. It, you, well, you going don't, in. In a way that uh, I like that because no matter how much money they throw at something, or how much they try to predict it, or how many preview screenings and numbers they get, nobody knows what the public's going to go for. And to me, that's reassuring. They haven't figured out a formula, and so the audience still has a say. Good way to put it, yeah. All right, well, let's have a listen. This is a, a medley from the film Delta of Venus.
you were uh, you mentioned in the before the previous uh, queue about uh, some stars were lined up. This this next one looks like that it had a pretty good cast too. Uh, Frankie the Fly, which I've not seen. This was a 1997 film, but I I I wrote in my notes. I was just you know uh, Dennis Hopper and Daryl Hannah in it, and I think some others. But uh-huh. here's a, another another film about some kind of a big time big time scam, I guess. Well, uh, Michael Madsen, uh, who's in it, plays that's this the other name, yeah, ruthless uh, mob boss, and um, uh, the lead character. Uh, you just mentioned his name. Um, now I can't think of it. Oh, Dennis uh, Hopper. Dennis Hopper, thank you. Uh, plays this the lowest of the low on the rung of being um, in the mob. So he's always having to do, you know, the stuff that nobody else wants to do. And he falls in love with this porn star, not porn star, but this porn actress uh, that's played by Daryl Hannah. And what she really wants to be is an actress in New York. And what he really wants to be is a writer. And so they relate to each other in the midst of all this sort of uh, negativity and, you know, world, this sort of seedy world. They fall in love and they have this romance and um, uh, he is able to provide her by stealing it from the mob with enough money to go to New York in the end and actually uh, try to become an actress. And you'll hear that at the end of this, too. Uh, and uh, he, you, we think he's been killed by the mob, but one of the mob uh, guys takes pity on him and uh, drives, him to the air, drives him to the train station and tells him to get out of town and never come back. So it's kind of a character study, and uh, I really loved it. And as you listen to this, it would you know keep some of those things in mind that George mentioned, and you you will see that story probably appear right before your eyes just by listening to the music. So this um, this is from the film uh, Frankie and uh, Frankie the Fly, seven film again uh, a medley from the score uh, by George Clinton.
I heard you mention that uh, when you're conducting, and then the, you get the call from the engineering room. Do you uh, do you conduct all your all your scores? I do. Uh, I'm I'm not the world's best conductor, but I figure how many opportunities in my life am I going to get to have uh, to conduct the world's best musicians playing my music? <laughs> yeah. And also, it gives me a chance to make immediate corrections. I don't have to go. I don't have to talk to the conductor. I can make those changes right there on the stand. Yeah, much to my surprise, I guess there are some composers that, that don't conduct, do they? That's, that's correct. That kind of surprises me, I, I, just for the reasons that you just mentioned. I mean, I guess I hear they, they're in the, in the control booth or whatever and will listen to it. But Well, some people prefer that politically because that's where the director is and that's where the producers are. And if there are comments being made about the music, if you're on the uh, podium, you don't hear them. Mm -hmm. If you're in the booth, you do. And um, then you're part of that conversation right away. I, I, I'm sure you're aware of it because it, I, I think they've been having several of these out in L.A. But um, there's an interesting trend that is starting. I'm sure you've noticed that there's starting to be a, a performances. A, a, an orchestra will play the entire score to a film while the film shows on a screen above the orchestra. And I know there's been a couple of John Williams scores that have gone that way. I think uh, E.T. and uh, what's the other one? Oh, Close Encounters. Have you seen any of those performances where they have well, a live orchestra uh, perform the yeah, score? Going back to ones like Singing in the Rain, I saw that one performed. Uh, They've come up with a technique where they're able to um, subdue, not completely get rid of, but subdue to the point you don't hear it when the orchestra's playing, the actual soundtrack to the film. Because they, they don't have all the separate elements 
to just have the dialogue and singing. And so um, they're able to, to, to do that even with the old films. And even though I've seen Singing in the Rain numerous times, to see it come to life with an orchestra, same film I've seen in theaters and, you know, on DVDs, right. it, it comes alive in a way that, I, I don't know, I can't describe it. If, if you've never, if one has, if, any, if your audience has never gone to one of these concerts, it's really worth it because it's a, it's a whole different uh, experience than just seeing the movie in the theater. I agree. I saw Close Encounters that way, and it and it was it was really special. And plus, fact, it's just fascinating to watch the conductor getting you know getting the orchestra ready for to play something. And it could be it could be a five minute cue. It also could be thirty seconds. I mean, it's just kind of interesting to. It's got to be very demanding for the orchestra too. I mean, they do have a a, a break in the middle so they can get get a little bit of rest. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I would highly encourage anyone to go see something like that. And it's really been a boon to a lot of uh, uh, struggling uh, orchestras around the country because it gets people into hearing live orchestra that might not have ever gone into um, a theater to hear one before. You're right. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, and so I know several have occurred in New Orleans in our area, and I'm aware of some, I think, in Virginia and obviously Los Angeles. It seems to be picking up steam, so keep your eyes peeled uh, for when something like that may be happening in your backyard. And yeah, by all means, take advantage of it. It's a, it's a great experience. Um, we were going to, Oh, okay. Oh, here's a great title. Maybe this should have been in the, uh, in the first section. This is a film called speaking of sex, uh-huh. uh, from, from 2001. Uh, and I guess again, unfortunately wasn't among some of the scores that are heard a lot of, um, Tell us a little bit about that movie and why you chose this particular medley to play today. Well, first of all, this is a film by the same director that did Wild Things, John McNaughton. And uh, when I told him my concept for this uh, score was going to be uh, Nina Rota meets Booker T and the MGs. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, go for it. Then, uh, you know, I knew that I was uh, in for a lot of creative fun. And so it really was. Uh, there are elements in it that sound European and almost French because a movie takes place in Boise, Idaho. And Boise is a French name, really. Um, huh. And um, it's, you know, bois, it means woods. And, um, and so I use that as an excuse to have it have sort of a European flavor to it. Um, but you'll hear the Booker T influence underneath all the uh, accordion and uh, trumpet and all the other stuff that... Uh, you wouldn't think would go with a score that had that kind of a, a fundamental core. Let's play this. This is a, a medley from the score for uh, Speaking of Sex. It's a 2000. I'm sorry. As an aside, I'm sorry. The story is uh, it stars um, uh, crazy. Oh, I'll think of his name in a minute. But anyway, the story is this is young couple that is having problems because they are having problems with the bedroom and they both seek out separately the advice of some sexual uh, therapists and the sexual therapists turn out to be crazier <laughs> than they are and give them all this terrible advice and wind up having affairs with them. And then uh, Bill Murray uh, becomes their lawyer and tries to, uh, and tries to uh, work out uh, some sort of settlement based upon the suit that they brought against these insane um, therapists. Well, and it's but and yet it just didn't. I mean, it sounds like it'd be 
really fun, but just for some reason just didn't didn't take off. Yeah. Hmm. Are are any of your? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I keep asking these questions before we get to it, but these uh, these films of yours that we've listed are any of them available on CD? Uh, no. No. No, actually not. Uh, the Big Bounce is available. Okay. So uh, yeah, go on to Amazon, folks. Buy the Big Bounce. Give Georgia a little bit of a residual on that. All right. So uh, let's see. So let's uh, let's go ahead and play the uh, the medley from Speaking of Sex. This is a 2001 film, uh, once again written by our guest George Clinton.
But then we get to the unfortunate situation that sometimes occurs, and as you said, in just about every composer's life, it's going to happen one time or another, and that is when there's a, a score that is rejected, which is a really strong word, but um, it's got to be hard to, to have an intense, you know, two, four, six weeks organized and everything else, and it's all recorded, and then I guess it's the director or the producers that all of a sudden say, eh, didn't quite hit the mark. Uh, Huh? I know I'm, I know you haven't had a lot of experiences with it, but but kind of talk to me about that because that's got to be really tough pill to swallow. It is. Um, in the end, you have to realize that you are creating something that's uh, adding value to a product, which is the film, and the people who are paying for that product and for the creation of that product are usually the film company and are the producers. And so everybody, including the director, is basically doing it uh, as a work for hire or as a hired gun that is contributing to the success and markability of that particular product. And in this case, the film. So if, for whatever reasons, or whether they be political because the producers don't, producer always wanted it to be his favorite composer and the director wanted it to be somebody else, and in the end, even though the composer has actually done the score, the producer rejects it and uh, says, no, I want my friend to do it or my, my guy to do it. Or, as is the case in uh, some situations, um, certainly was the case with Gar Gabriel Yared, who you know, did English Patient, on a score called Troy, where he actually had, uh, they actually asked him for demos and put them under the temp score and because the audience that they previewed it to didn't like the music, he was fired before he ever got a chance to even record it. Oh, jeez. Cutthroat, cutthroat, jeez. I mean, and, and uh, it, it, it's amazing all the stories that are out there uh, about reject and And I can't even imagine what it's like for a composer that comes in after someone else's score has been rejected. And what are the emotions and the the pressure that's on you when you come in to do something new because the previous guy was fired. Is, is that a tough situation oh, it's, it's to very, fall into? It's very tough. But if they like it, you become a hero. So yeah. there's, there's the danger of them, you know, of you becoming more of, the, more of a problem. But uh, when they ask you to, you know, do it more like the temp score because the other guy didn't do it like the temp score, that's the least satisfying situation to, to be in is when you're asked to, you know, do it in a way that the other composer wasn't either willing to or able to. Um, and the thing is, everybody knows that happens. So there's usually never any resentment on the part of the composer who, you know, got rejected towards the one who actually got the gig. It wasn't that composer's fault that the, uh, that your initial score was rejected. So, yeah. but, um, it varies from film to film, um, and it's usually uh, the score sometimes is, is rejected after it's recorded. Mm. Uh, that's that's the worst of all possible worlds, and uh, it uh, again it can be a political situation, it can be a marketing thing, it can be you know several things uh, that can that can contribute to it. But they've literally paid for an entire score, 
and paid a composer. Most composers have a pay or play contract, which means if you don't use their score, you still have to pay them. And so they've paid all that money, and now they're going to have to pay another composer and uh, hire another orchestra and, uh, you know, spend all that money doing, uh, doing a different score. And yet those tapes, I guess they just go into a vault? Because you, I, from what you were telling me, I guess you don't own the music, so to speak. So it's not like you can have a, well, let me at least have the tapes of this. I might use it for something. That just doesn't happen, right? Mostly it does not happen. No, if you've done a score and uh, the studio is aware of the score and they've listened to the score, and uh, then, you know, it's it's something they've paid for that they don't feel works, so they just don't use it. And sometimes they vaporize and sometimes they actually show up again. It's there's some That's probably a well, whole I, different I, topic for a... Well, all composers of rejected scores, sometimes these themes find their way into other movies, strangely enough. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Up, uh, you know, doing some research about um, some of these scores that we're going to be uh, listening to later of uh, rejected scores about how certain themes made their way into um, later movies. Yeah, a future project. Exactly. Well, although I know it hasn't happened a lot to you, you did provide an example to me of a, of a film that d- didn't make the cut. This was uh, called Scary Movie 2. Right. Uh, again, a kind of a, a, a medley from that, from that film. Now, my first question before we play it, has this ever been heard in public before? No. World premiere, folks. World premiere. World premiere on What's the Score, a world premiere playing of music that you've definitely haven't heard before because it was never made public. That That's exciting. I'm uh, excited too. Um, yes. I, I have an interesting story with this. Um, Please. The, the director, Keenan Ivory Wines, um, they had had a big success with Scary Movie. And I met with him and, you know, he showed me uh, some uh, dailies or a, an assembly of the film. And uh, he was happy to have me do it. Um, and then... Um, I wasn't able, we weren't able to really connect after that. I never really had a, it was not a collaboration. Um, I would um, show him stuff and his comments were yes or no. And that was it. You know, I was sort of, if it were no, I was sort of left in the dark as to, well, how can I, how can I improve it? And um, it seemed to be going okay until uh, the day of the recording session. Uh, and we had rented uh, the big studio at Fox, and I had a big orchestra showing up and a chorus. And the producers met me at the, the door of the studio and said, um, we should cancel the session. Um, the director thinks it's a, it's a big waste of time. And, of course, I'd been working on this thing. I was very excited. Uh, to me, the best moment in the film, uh, in the film scoring process, is being in the studio and hearing it come to life. And oh, so, yeah. So I said, well, look, you, you're going to have to pay for this studio anyway. You've already uh, booked it. You're going to have to pay for these musicians anyway. You've already booked them. Um, let's go ahead and record, you know, at least a couple of days worth. And uh, you might find something that you wind up using in the end. The reality is you're going to have to pay for it anyway. So it's not going to cost you any money. And you might wind up with something you can use. And so they agreed, and uh, the director never showed up. And huh. uh, I told the orchestra right from the top, I said, well, 
here's the deal. Well, you may never hear this move, music in the movie, but we're going to have a wonderful time recording for the next couple of days. And uh, thank you for being here. And, you know, let's, let's just do it. Wow. And so anyway, uh, you're going to hear um, a couple of cues, I think, from, uh, from this. Uh, the approach I took on this and the approach I like to take with uh, a lot of comedy is I, I think comedy is like, um, it's like those uh, comedy teams, you know, there's a straight man and there's a comedian. Right. And it's like Laurel and Hardy or uh, Abbott and Costello, stuff like that. To me, the music is a straight man. And uh, the comedy is happening on the screen. The, the comedians, the actors are producing the comedy. And especially if it's something like either a spy movie in Austin Powers case, the more uh, authentically spy-like the music sounds, the funnier the absurdity of the comedy is. Hmm. And that was the approach I took on this and the one I took, told the director I wanted to take. And um, he didn't like it. And... Um, and so the music supervisor told me at the end of the sessions, uh, we're going a different direction. Thank you for your hard work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's a fascinating story. I appreciate you sharing that because uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not something that's really easy to talk about. But like I say, the good news is, ladies and gentlemen, this is the uh, rejected score for Scary Movie 2 written by our guest who has kindly decided to premiere this recording on this show, written by our guest, George Clinton. Enjoy.
All right. We, um, in our putting this program together, we had, uh, George and I had decided to start uh, just explore a few other examples out there of there are interesting stories with all of them. We probably won't get to all of it, but nonetheless, it's, it's very interesting. And I don't know if, if George is going to be able to provide some back background on some of this. Um, one, uh, one film you had pointed out was a torn curtain. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the individual uh, the composer that was rejected was was it Bernard Herman? That's correct. What? Well, that's the, a heavyweight there to reject. I mean, that's I know. And and the director was Alfred Hitchcock, whom he had worked with nonstop. Oh, oh, this was the one where they had the falling out. Okay. Yeah. And it was more than just a falling out. Uh, what had happened was um, Universal had become increasingly frustrated uh, with Alfred Hitchcock's uh, movies. They, they'd become less successful. They felt like he was being too indulgent. Uh, and so they wanted him to try to make something that was more mainstream. And so um, I forgot the guy's name that was just on univer- on uh, on uh, Alfred Hitchcock's case to fire Herman. Uh, because he felt like the music was too dark and uh, wasn't pop enough and old school. And, you know, and uh, Hitchcock was at a place in his career where he had to make a decision. And um, he decided that he needed to listen to the the film company. And I think there was also the things that become sort of uncomfortable between Herman and uh, Hitchcock by then. And so um, they fired him and hired uh, John Addison. Wow. And, and, and you're talking about, what, you know, one of the heavyweights of film composing, certainly in the, in the golden age of scoring movies. I mean, he's got a list of credits. You is a mile long. And, and one, so that was and go one, ahead. Of, one of the heavyweight director composer relationships. Yeah. I cannot imagine an Alfred Hitchcock film without a Bernard Harmon score, except for this one. Yeah. Robbie Susan. Well, let's, Let's take a listen to this. This is in this. Is this a medley from the score, or is it just like the main title? Or this is like a main title. Okay. All right. From the uh, 1966 film *Torn Curtain*, uh, the music is by Bernard Herrmann.
another uh, great example we have, and I've heard about this, was the uh, the score for 2001. And I suspect you probably have some interesting insights into this, I, more so than I would, but uh, well, uh, it was Alex North, I guess, that was rejected. But talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, Alex North was hired by Kubrick uh, to score the film, and Kubrick had already tempted the score with the uh, uh, also Sparks Zarathustra, you know, the bomb, 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 right. you know, all that stuff. He he had already done that and uh, had had this sort of idea about what he wanted it to be. And he wasn't particularly involved in um, giving North direction about it. And North even went to um, London and recorded it. And, you know, the whole thing was done. And not until the premiere, when he was sitting in the audience with his wife and did not see his name on the film, <laughs> did Alex North learn that Kubrick had ditched his score in favor of the classical music that we know now as the score to 2001. I can't even begin to imagine. Oh, my really, gosh. Really crushed Alex North for a while. I mean, it took him a while to, uh, to get over that. It was just a major, major blow. And, um, you know, I, I, I can't imagine sitting there and having that happen. No kidding. Uh, no forewarning at all. He's, nope. I mean... Uh, Someone messed up big time on that. That's just, that's cruel. It's cruel, and Kubrick was just, you know, so self-obsessed that um, it never occurred to him, I guess. Yeah, you're probably right. Just, no, sorry, forgot. <laughs> yeah, really. Something like that. Well, let's, uh, this is a, a short piece from his uh, rejected score, which, if I recall correctly... It was re-recorded by... Goldsmith re-recorded it, right? Exactly. Jerry Goldsmith got the money together, along with uh, North... North the Alex North Estate. And they went to London and they did a whole album of this, um, of this music and it exists as a CD and it's, it's great to listen to. Oh, that's great. Well, here's a little sampling of it. The, uh, uh, from the, uh, was intended to be for the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. And this uh, would written be, by, oh, go ahead. This would be the opening, you know, where you see the monolith and where the, also Sprox, Sprox Zarathustra uh, I, comes You're right. In. You can kind of tell that that was what the intention was, but yep. anyway, let's uh, let's have a listen. Okay.
as uh, some of my listeners know, I'm a, a really big fan of John Barry and have really followed uh, followed his entire career and have tried to collect everything I can get my hands on. There's a there's actually several examples. It's amazing to me. Uh, I'm sure it's no greater than anyone else. It's just I'm aware of them that how many scores that he had that were rejected. Uh, I, I don't know if I, yeah, I'll go ahead and play this one, but if, if time permits, I might even play another one. I do recall that he was, uh, and this is I'm not speaking out of hand. These are his words. Uh, he was signed to do the uh, film uh, Prince of Tides for Barbara Streisand. Do you, do you know the story? The story goes that when he was signed to do Prince of Tides, uh, he had written a main theme uh, and recorded it. Barbara Streisand loved it. All the executives loved it at Columbia. You know, every, everything was peachy. And then I guess a few days passed, and Streisand ended up calling John Barry and said, well, I'd like to make this change here and a little bit there and kind of speed this up or slow, you know, whatever it was. He was making all these suggestions. And Barry was the type that, boy, when he when he was finished and he sent he, he gave you a finished product that was supposed to be finished. Hmm. And uh, she was very hands-on, and he just – he finally said, "This is a joyless experience. I'm I'm leaving." <laughs> so let's go ahead and uh, play uh, a couple of cues from a, a rejected score of John Barry's. Uh, the movie was called The Golden Child with uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, and it uh, went through the test uh, audience process. And apparently, the audiences didn't really connect with the music, and that's why they ultimately didn't use it. But uh, I thought it was terrific. Uh, the two cues I'm going to play, I don't have a way of knowing what their titles are because they never got to that point in the recording process. But uh, have a listen to this, and I think you'll find that it uh, it's a shame that the music never got used in the movie, but at least finally it got released on CD so that we're able to enjoy it. So uh, two cues from the film The Golden Child, a rejected score written by John Barry.
I think I mentioned at the uh, beginning of the first episode we had uh, with George last week that we'd had some technical problems, and indeed, they continued. Unfortunately, I lost my signal and didn't record uh, the last little bit of our conversation, so my apologies for that. But I did want to point out that uh, how we ended our conversation was uh, talking about uh, future projects for George. I know he's going to be doing a score for a Disney film, uh, I think sometime in the early fall, but the thing he's really excited about, and I am too now having learned about it, is a, a violin concerto that he has done. Uh, and when he was approached about it, he said, well, I'm not used to just kind of writing something out of thin air. I usually have visuals and a story. So what he decided to do was to write his own story uh, that takes place in the Wild West. Uh, and he wrote this little short story, which then gave him the basis for which to write the violin concerto. And it's really turned out fabulous. It's going to have its um, world premiere performance in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, I believe in another month or so. I will post on the What's the Score Facebook page, uh, and I'll post it on my other uh, social medias as well as the exact date, as well as the website where you can get further information. It's called Rose of Sonora, and if you look it up on the web, it's uh, just all one word, roseofsonora.com. And if you go there, you'll uh, see a great description of... Uh, the process that went into uh, putting this all together, and uh, I think there's also information about the uh, the first public performance. Uh, George was kind enough to, to send me some demos of it, and I've listened to it, and it's fabulous. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So uh, if you happen to be in that area of the country, please check it out. Uh, and if you're not, look for it to be performed in your area sometime in the future, or perhaps there'll be a CD release at some point. Uh, I think you'd really, really enjoy it. Uh, again, my profound thanks to George for the, uh, the effort and the time that he put into preparing for this program. He really gave it a lot of thought and, and exceeded all my expectations. Uh, it was really a terrific uh, few hours that we spent together learning about the world of film music and uh, not only just his music, but the process of composing for films. I thought it was just fascinating, and I hope you found it just as interesting as well. With that... Uh, my thanks to you for listening. Look forward to future episodes with uh, other guests coming down the line. I'm already lining up a few. Uh, and we'll continue to explore the magic of music in the movies. With that, I only have one thing left to say, and that is that my name's Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.